as an immunologist, can you imagine? We've had the biggest success in 100 years in our field. It's been the most amazing thing. Modern medicine has done a lot for mankind. But the one thing we've all been reminded of since the pandemic began is how much there is that we don't know about the human body. First explorers in the Amazon, and they must have said, look at all these species and all these interacting ecosystems. It's a bit like that. And and the beauty of it is we're, we're discovering some very interesting things. What if a lot of the answers we seek already exist within each of us, hiding in plain sight? We've missed the fact that there's all these other bacteria that are good for us and that we need. And what they are discovering might explain that gut feeling that we all have from time to time. Hello there, everybody. Welcome to That Gut Feeling. I'm Jonathan Healy, presenter of this five-part podcast series sponsored by Zenflor and answering the important questions about your gut health and how we can look after it. Across the series, we're hearing from some of the leading Irish and international experts on the growing awareness of gut health. And for this episode, I am joined by no less than Professor Luke O'Neill, one of the world's leading immunologists. He's the chair of biochemistry at Trinity College Dublin. And more importantly, he is in a rock and roll band. Luke O'Neill, how are you, my friend? Very well, Jonathan. Very well, indeed. It is really great to talk to you because we, we talk on a regular basis on a certain radio program uh, when I'm filling in and I'm always in awe at what you're going to bring to the conversation. It's, 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 always, a, it's always an interesting chat. Let me put it that way. It certainly is. We all great chat to you and I over the years, haven't we, about many things scientific, of course. You know, we've spanned many topics, haven't we, over the years? I would love to be able to go back, though, and talk about why cats climb trees, uh, because it has been dominated somewhat by uh, a certain topic over the last little while. But it goes to the core of why you're the best guy to talk to in a crisis around immunology. How long have you been at this? A long time. Yeah, 1985, if you can imagine. Um, Highly relevant to our discussion. Uh, Crohn's disease was the very first disease I worked on. And that's an immune disease. And you're Sadly, you get bad inflammation and diarrhea and all kinds of things. So it began for me with Crohn's. And then I got obsessed with the immune system. I'm not quite sure why, but the immune system kind of struck me as a fascinating thing to get interested in, scientifically, obviously. And way back then, we didn't know much, amazingly. And from 85 on, year after year, our knowledge grew and grew and grew. And now at the moment, of course, we know a huge amount about the immune system, which is tremendous, especially in, in the time of COVID. We can deploy all that knowledge. So a long, long lifetime interest in this whole area, I guess. And was it always, obviously it's academia, you, you, you have yeah. been an academic pretty much your full career, haven't you? I have, but I've, I, mean, I often collaborate. I mean, I got into academia for my PhD, obviously. I went to London, did my PhD there, again, on, on the immune system. I began to work on rheumatoid arthritis at that point as a disease. But of course, we collaborate with industry all the time. They're the people that make the medicines, remember. So if you make a discovery in academia... You have to get into bed with the companies because they've got the deep pockets and they can do the uh, clinical trials and all that. And I've put my toe in the water a few times. In 1999, I almost left academia and went full time into industry, you see, in the US. Uh, But academia is my favorite, Jonathan, because it gives you freedom. When you're an academic, you're totally free to do whatever investigations you want. And then secondly, I can educate the students. So it's a a nice combination Mm. to be an academic. But it would be a very easy life for you, Luke, if you just kept to that and, and didn't necessarily change or, or go out and put yourself in the public sphere. Yeah. Uh, it ended up in the last 19, 20 months that Luke O'Neill found a huge amount of prominence um, in a way that I, I know I know you, so I know you're going to be able to process it. But 
I'd imagine if you threw that at the average academic, I'm yeah. not sure how they would respond to that level of fame. Well, it got very intense, is the word I would use for obvious reasons, but it was just more of the same. Because as, as you know, from, from 2013, I went on with Pat Kenny on News Talk. I've been doing it for eight years anyway, you know, and I love doing it. Like once a week, I'd turn up and discuss some science topic of interest to me, usually about medicine or the immune system. But then when COVID broke, of course, I said, well, I go on twice a week. And then I began doing it Mondays and Thursdays and it just became more intense in a way. But I would say this, John, it, it, was, it was a privilege and an honour to be asked the whole time. It wasn't just me, many of my colleagues. We all know lots of immunologists in Ireland now, don't we? There was a gang of us, you know, appearing regularly, you see. And like, why wouldn't I share my knowledge? I mean, the whole thing was about me telling people stuff I'm interested in and that became all, all the more relevant in COVID. So in some ways I see news talk as my uh, way to communicate science, if you see what I mean. In other words, I could engage with news talk and other other, and then suddenly RTE began asking me that the surprise to me was to be on the six one news say. I didn't see that coming, obviously, you know. But then well, again, when it wasn't when it, when it wasn't a court case, yes, absolutely. That's exactly right. Yeah. <laughs> but 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 then again, it was so important, wasn't it, that we all we all did our job in a sense, us academics who were in the area and were experts in, you know, vaccines or the immune system and were asked to do this. It was it was it was a really important thing to do, I think. When you were putting yourself out there. Uh, you were inviting commentary as well, weren't you? And, and yeah. that was harder to deal with because you were inevitably going to come into contact with people who don't agree with you. And yes. was was that a more difficult part of the not, pandemic? For not you? really. I'm too long in the tooth to worry about that in a sense. You know, I think you and I spoke about this and you said, just mind yourself there because you're going to eat in on you. Remember you said this to me and that was very useful information to me. I thought, thank you for, for steering me in that direction. I mean, you are perturbed when you see someone attacking you. You're only human, you know? But in, in my view, it galvanized me further, actually. I said, right, I'm going to keep saying my stuff now, because what they're saying is there's no evidence behind, say, the anti-vaxxer stuff, whatever it might be. I'll just keep doing my thing, you know, and, and I kept doing it. So so no, nobody wants to be shouted at. It, it became like my, my best analogy, Jonathan, was that like you're in the playground in primary school and someone shouts at you across the playground, you know, or you're a, an effort or whatever. There wasn't any difference to that, really, you know, but it was unusual. Yeah, I've never had such hate thrown at me in my life apart from some friends who hate me occasionally. <laughs> yeah. But you were but used to that. Well, it goes in the territory, doesn't it? And I think you said to me, look, we all get it. You know, everybody gets this. You've just got to, you've just got to kind of get used to it and ignore it as best you can, really. And um, one of the things that I find fascinating about the whole immunology space and gut health is that it, it feels like we're at the first stage of Captain Kirk's journey uh, aboard the Starship Enterprise, because we're only now getting to learn more about how everything is interconnected and everything is working together. I mean, do you feel like that when you're when you're going to work and, and you're carrying out research or you're reading papers that there is so much we don't know about yeah. gut health? That's the joy of it, in a way. I mean, if you're a scientist, you want to find stuff out. That, that's your mission, really, and discover new things. I mean, to be a scientist is to be curious and then work in an area of science. Now, when you look at the microbiome and the immune system, that's a very fertile area for investigation. Because as you've correctly said, we're just beginning to understand this. We're just beginning to realize it can be manipulated for the therapeutic effect. And there was a bit of a surprise when this began, Jonathan, because you know, there's a whole world in there, basically with billions of different bacteria. And the next big advance was they are interacting with the immune system, with neurons going up to your brain. I mean, you're right, it's, it's a bit like um, the first explorers in the Amazon, in a way, you know? And they must have said, look at all these species and all these interacting ecosystems. It's a bit like that. And, and the beauty of it is we're, we're discovering some very interesting things. 
that could have use then to treat certain diseases, for example. But you're quite right. It's, it is it is still a frontier. I mean, we're, still just, mm. we're just beginning to start it in some ways on this journey. And, and because we have gotten used to, there's a pill for that, or there's a there's a tablet. Um, we've become dependent as a species on that as the outcome, whereas the reality is we need to understand more about how everything interacts with each other. And in that context, has a lot of the work that you've been doing kind of shoving in the wrong direction when you should have been shoving in this direction? Um, may, maybe, I don't think so. I mean, my, my area has seen great advances in terms of new therapies. So for rheumatoid arthritis, actually, there was a big breakthrough in 1990. Now, I wasn't involved in it directly, but I worked in that area, you know, and then we did get a new anti-inflammatory that can block a thing called TNF in the immune system, and that impacted on rheumatoid arthritis. So there has, there has been progress there. The big unknown is what causes these diseases, you see. Like, why do you suddenly develop Crohn's disease or colitis or rheumatoid? And we still don't know. And, and, and the gut part is beginning to inform that. So it looks as if an imbalance in the bacteria in your gut has a role to play in the development of those diseases. And that's a step up. In other words, we're getting closer to stopping the thing at source in a way, you see. So, so again, I suppose overall our goal is understand more, try to find things that are going wrong and try and correct them. And the good health part is definitely part of that, you see. And, and as I say, now we haven't seen any massive uh, therapeutic breakthroughs yet, but there's optimism that through understanding the gut, we might get to better therapies. And then if we move on from rheumatoid, rheumatoid is quite treatable now as a disease. You can slow it down with these medicines. Things like Parkinson's or depression, you know, now we know the gut is involved in those as well. And we need new treatments for those most of all, because the current treatments, there's some, but they aren't as effective as we'd like. So in some ways, it's all about getting, getting to the source and then coming up with great therapies. And then the, the dream in many ways is to stop the thing at source. You know, remember, prevention is always better than cure. The vaccines tell us that as an example. But if we can get closer to what's initiating disease, then we're in a much better place to try and stop it, you know? You've been doing some good presentations recently about the gut-brain axis, if we can call it that, and the link that's connected there. I mean, this is the kind of thing that fascinates you. You, you could go for hours on this. But, uh, how important is that discovery that there is a link between what's in your head yeah. and what's in your tummy? Well, who would have thought it is the first thing, you know, that the fact that what's in your tummy is affecting your mood. I mean, we kind of knew anecdotally, you know, you get irritable bowel and you have problems in your gut. And if you're anxious and and depressed, you can see gastrointestinal disturbance, you know. So there was always that connection for, for maybe hundreds of years, really, I suppose, you know. But what's, what's moved on is the gut is talking to the brain through nerves. So your, your gut is highly innervated. In other words, there's all these nerve endings in your gut connecting to all the cells in the gut. And then, of course, they're now firing off. And there's, a, there's kind of a highway then from the gut through the, the nervous system up to the brain. And then the, the, the microbiome is releasing stuff. That's tickling those neurons and then somehow then transmitting information to the brain. And that's become very clear that the first big one was called the vagus nerve. It's the very famous massive nerve in your body and that connects into your gut. That was known, you know, decades ago. But ever and then since then, we've understood more and more about it. So if, if we I'm, I'm at the one, the one I would talk about example is multiple sclerosis, for instance. There's evidence that an imbalance in your gut bacteria might make that disease worse. It might make it even progress, you see. So again, you can imagine now what they're thinking now, if we can correct that imbalance in the gut with the bacteria, we might slow down MS. Now, who would have thought a disease that strips away the myelin on your nerves and causes paralysis could have a connection to the, the, to the bacteria in your gut? And again, now this is all, of course, experimental. It's early days, but it's, it's a very interesting area. It's a very interesting uh, pond to go fishing in now. Let's put it that way. You see. 
And again, it's directly because the, the whole gut is innervated, is the word we use, and all those nerves are connecting up to the brain. So there, it's a fascinating connection. Right? The, the challenge, of course, here is everybody's microbiome was different. I, I've got millions upon millions of bacteria and bacteriophage in my body doing what they're doing. You have similar but a different constitution. So ha, there's no one size fits all. Sure, there's not. Uh, right. and, and as a result, then that, that poses challenges when you're coming up with solutions. That's the huge challenge, and that's made it very difficult to pin down because you can take a thousand people with MS and measure the bugs in their gut, and there'll be differences. And can you get a, an association of one species over another? And it's been very difficult for that exact reason because we're also variable. And then your diet affects it. You might have a very heavy meal that might change the microbiome slightly. And then when you're measured in the experiment, it's a bit different. So it's been a very challenging thing. The real goal is to find what species of bacteria count, you know, in a certain situation. And then maybe figure out what they're doing and what they're making. These bugs are making, you know, biochemicals. Find those biochemicals and they could now be used as a therapy or as, as a way to manipulate things you see rather than the, the, the bacteria themselves. And, and it's moving in that direction slightly. In other words, how do, we, how do we get a medicine from this? It could be what the microbiome is making. That could be as important as anything yeah, and I love the way that we're more bacteria than human. Uh, it's it's the kind of thing that would keep you up at night if, if, if you thought about it. Yeah, yeah, we've more, more bacteria, absolutely. I think our, our biomass, we're like, we're like one big symbiotic organism in a way. We need these bacteria. They live inside us, you know? And obviously evolution was the, was, was the way that this was set up in a sense, that these, these bacteria give us stuff and we give them stuff. We feed them, John. The reason why they're in our bodies, by the way, is we feed them, you know, and they grow and multiply and so on. But meanwhile, they're helping us as well. And the word we use is symbiosis. It's a, it's a classic uh, thing in biology of a symbiotic relationship between the two. But the great challenge, Luke, is that we have been telling these bacteria for years that they weren't wanted. Kills 99.9% of bacteria stone dead, says most of the cleaners in uh, under the shelf in my kitchen. So, yeah. I mean, they've had a bad rap bacteria, haven't they? But they have for, de for decades, ever since they were discovered. And then penicillin comes along. And Alexander Fleming, of course, discovers penicillin as well. He killed them. You know, antibiotics kill bacteria. So you're quite right. The malign part of the bacterial world is the ones that cause diseases that kill us, obviously. And all through history, the main cause of death was infectious diseases, remember? So until antibiotics were discovered, you know, death was, was rampant through bacteria. I go with the black, the black death is that's a bacteria would kill you, the black death, the plague, you see. Antibiotics are discovered, they kill that bacteria now, and the black death goes away, you know. But we'd miss the fact that there's all these other bacteria that are good for us and that we need. It was known quite a while ago, like vitamin B12, a key vitamin, for instance, that we need for nutrition is made by the bacteria in your gut. That was discovered decades ago. So there was a hint of it, you know, one or two examples. And what's happened in the past, about 30 years is that knowledge has grown and grown and grown and got much more elaborate. In other words, it was always there reading their beneficial, but now we know a lot more about that. But bacteria, they, they fight each other as well, don't they? So that the bad stuff, let's, let's go back to the plague. You love the plague. I've talked yes. to you a great length about the plague yeah. before. The bacteria that carries the plague, there's probably another bacteria that the plague bacteria doesn't get on with. Uh, well, that's right. and, and, yeah, and, and there's different solutions that are there almost hiding in plain sight. Well, I will give you an example. When I began teaching immunology, about 30 odd years ago now, seems like the dark ages, by the way, from what we know now. What we saw in the textbook was you need bacteria in your gut to outcompete the bad guys. So in other words, if you drink some bacteria that's a bit disease-causing, luckily there's enough, he's outnumbered, you know. 
your, 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 your gut is full of bacteria to outcompete him and he dies off then because they're the ones win. That was always the main reason we thought the bacteria were there. It was the, it was the form of uh, kind of protection in a way to outcompete, you know, the bad one. Now, the bad one could get a foothold sometimes uh, and then begin to cause disease. But a, ma- a major reason back then was simply competition, you know, and they might kill him. I mean, bacteria can fight and kill each other, you know. And then, as you just mentioned, I think I'm going to go the phages. Then you know, bacteria get viruses inside them. So viruses infect every type of life on Earth, basically. They also infect bacteria. And phages can keep bacteria under control. And that was going on in the gut as well, you see. Because obviously you're very exposed. In other words, any surface that's open to the outside world, there's a risk of a bacteria from the outside getting in. You know, hence when we eat stuff, you know, it goes into our gut. You better have a way to stop those germs in your gut. The other big one, gentlemen, was acid pH. One reason why our stomach's very acidic Mm. It's to kill bacteria that are nasty. You know, they don't like those acid pH and they die off, you see. So, but this is very old-fashioned immunology. See, the immune system is about defending you. And if I said to you, it's mainly acid, you go, that's very boring. <laughs> it isn't very fancy, you know. Um, but it's still part of it. You still need acidic conditions. In your, and then you need all these bacteria to outcompete the bad ones when they arrive in your yeah. stomach. The, the other great imponderable is that, yeah, your microbiome is different to mine. But as we change, as we get older... Our, our microbiomes change as well, don't they? And yeah. as a result of that, then older people have a different composition in their gut than yeah. perhaps they would have had when they were in their 20s. And that's not necessarily a good thing either. It's not something that, that ages well. That was a very important finding, actually, by our friends in Cork, of course, as you know. I mean, they, they were one of the first to really show this. They took samples from nursing homes and they noticed that the microbiome was less diverse. So in other words, there were less trees in the forest, if you like, you know, compared to someone outside a nursing home. And that was a concern. And then was that dietary, because maybe the diet was less diverse, less exercise, various things control the microbiome, you see. So, so first of all, you've got to try and stay healthy into old age. One reason is to keep your microbiome healthy. And things like a balanced diet, lots of fiber, the usual things, uh, lots of exercise is important as well. But you're quite right, as you get older, anyway, it changes, even in the optimum situation it'll get less diverse for whatever reason still don't know why by the way that's another good scientific question but you're right though as you get older you need to look after your microbiome as much as you look after every other part of your, your system in a way you know yeah but whatever about getting older if our diets are terrible um if yeah. we're consuming all the wrong types of food um yeah. we're, we're probably accelerating that process aren't we so you can be young and have a very unhealthy microbiome but you have a chance to possibly repair that well that's right exactly there's a huge work going into this now in terms of how diet affects the microbiome. It's an obvious thing in a way, isn't it? You know, and the usual well-balanced diet is best for your microbiome as well. They're trying to identify what foodstuffs are especially good. Fiber is a key one. Uh, high sugar is bad, you know. Uh, some of these artificial sweeteners that was recently shown to maybe change the microbiome, you know. So in other words, it's a really active area to try to make sure that one reason for a good diet is also to do with your microbiome is kind of the, what's emerging. Still a work in progress, by the way. Uh, and there's still a bit of controversy around some of it. But certainly a good diet is essential for a good, healthy microbiome. Uh, Dr. Philip Kieran, uh, on another episode of this podcast, uh, was lamenting the fact that people kept bringing him cake because his surgery is next door to a bakery. Uh, and yeah. as a result, he, uh, he he had a good pandemic, let's put it that way, uh, yeah. and, and felt it on the far side. And the pandemic has been bad in many ways. I mean, you used to relieve stress by jumping around on the stage like a mad fella yeah, uh, exactly. as, as an aging rock and roller. Uh, but you didn't have that much opportunity to jump around, I'd imagine, in the last 18 months. So did, did you have a similar problem pandemic-wise? I think I did. Yes, I think I did. Try to keep up with a bit of exercise and a bit of de-stress is key. 
And that's the other big thing, you know, stress is a factor for the microbiome too, you know, all those sorts of things. But yes, we all have to get through it as best we, as best we could really, didn't we? Yeah, and t- talk about the music, because I always found this fascinating. I mean, you, you, you've you ended up, were you on the Late Late Show singing at one stage? I was, in, was, on that, was that a fever the, dream I had? I was on the stage at the Gaiety Theatre on New Year's Eve, can you believe oh, it, with Mundy, <laughs> who was very gracious. He asked me to go on with him, and we sang a song called Mexico, which is all about getting better and the sun coming out and stuff. You know? And I said, I, I got a taxi after that. And the the theatre was empty. The, the New Year's Eve, the Gaiety was empty. I'm on stage with Monday and Sharon Shannon and her band, right? Now, you're quite right. What the hell am I doing in that situation? I'm in a taxi on the way home. And the guy said to me, so what were you doing tonight? I said, well, you wouldn't believe where I was. <laughs> I told him. He said, that must have been like a great dream. And I said, well, it's more of a nightmare, except when I dreamt about it, I was also naked. <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, but imagine playing in the game with no audience on New Year's Eve with Monday. It was, it was the most alarmingly weird thing. Like, to me, that was the most surreal part of the whole pandemic. Must be said. Yeah, I'd imagine it was. But I mean, you, 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 you t- tell us about the makeup of the metabolics, because it's you and other scientists. They're so like-minded individuals uh, who, who need to have a bit of a release by the sounds of it. Well, it goes back to 2017. There was a conference in Dublin, a big conference in the RDS, which I was an organizer of. A thousand immunologists came to Dublin and nobody gave a monkey shot. You know I mean? It might be a different story now. We had a peaceful time. There a thousand people. At the end of every conference, there's always a band or a, you know, a dinner or whatever it might be. And they asked me, well, you're a musician. Can you put a band together to entertain the delegates, you see? So I did. And I got three of my medical friends who are very keen. Uh, our drummer is a neurologist. The bass player is an intensivist up in James's. We've got a guitarist who's a neonatologist in Hollis Street, Colin O'Donnell, you know, and O'Connor and Brian Murray, let's call them out. And then we had a biochemist on the trumpet. You know, it's very strange. You know? um, so we, we managed to do it. I couldn't have to pluck up courage, you know, and learn all the songs. And, and then very importantly, our drummer knew a fantastic guitarist, Dr. Chris Cole, and he's a professional. So he lifted us, you know. Okay. You know, there was one fellow who knew what he was doing. Well, we're not that stupid, you know. We, we knew we were a little bit naked uh, musically, so he was brilliant. I mean, in fact, we love it. We we're all a big fan of his. Put the band together, did the gig, and then guess what? We got on well. Let's do more gigs, and we end up doing. I'd say we've done before COVID about fifty gigs in total. Isn't that incredible? Including a residency in the Darky Duck, which was great fun. Well, I, I mean, it is the most sought after uh, residency in the entire country. Uh, to be <laughs> fair, and what what kind of music? Just for those who haven't heard you. Um, it's very eclectic. Let's start with that. So, so uh, it's, it's just dad rock. You know, it's the kind of music that uh, you'd love. Down there as well. <laughs> <laughs> I'm up the We like to do a bit. Of, we do a bit of rock. You know, it, it's the Stones, the Beatles. We would be a good wedding band. Let's put it that way. The mission, actually, when the band started, down, I said to you, look, I said, our mission is imagine it's a miserable Friday night somewhere in Dublin, and we get up and we just lift people up we just just you know, they've had a miserable week at work you know we get on and we play songs and they have a bit of a laugh and a bit of a sing song and a bit of a dance that's the mission it's very simple you know so can i ask you are you taking bookings for weddings and christmas and bar you never know we might we may well do well of course we haven't played together in, in a year and a half so it's, it's a little bit fragile now must be said but uh, yeah, well, we're dying and, to get back together again to have another go you, you could you could work on the uh, the second difficult album once you get back together that's right you, you, yeah. you mentioned a thousand immunologists coming to that conference in dublin yeah. little did they know the, the no, period that was ahead of them yeah. um one thing i found and again because i've been knocking around a bit uh during the economic crash you could never get two economists to effectively agree with each other yes. on anything it turns out immunologists are very very similar aren't yeah. you that there's a strong diversity of opinion amongst oh, there the is. and you want that you want skepticism right 
The one thing a scientist needs is to be skeptical because is that true? Is the data holding up? Can you reproduce it somewhere else? That's a big thing for us. Like I, I'm only happy in my life when, when, when someone else repeats my work in a different country, you know, just in case there's an artifact or it was the Liffey water or something like that. You know, in other words, you need to get confirmation of your discoveries and always be questioning. You're, you're only a good scientist if you're skeptical of your own data and someone else's. Now the good news is you finally reach a consensus. And now it's true. Science is actually about getting to the truth, you know? And then finally you get there and it's great. Sometimes it falls over because it's not true for whatever reason, doesn't pan out, you know? But eventually you get to the truth and that, that's the key moment in a sense. But to be a scientist, it's, a bit, it's to be a bit uneasy, actually, a bit uneasy. So that's part of our, uh, one of our key traits. So we do disagree, you know? And we want more evidence. You see, I want more and more evidence to support this and then I'll be happy in my conclusions, you know? Are you, are you confident now on the back of this awful period that we've been through that we have made a bit of a leap forward. I, like, you would never have thought, and I know because you've said this before, that we would have come up with effective vaccines that would be delivered to over half the world's population within 18 months uh, for a virus we'd never heard of prior to that. That would never have happened before. I, I mean, I, I, I is this almost, a good thing? You, you might be surprised, but I'm almost speechless when I think of it, because, you know, um, to see this happen, and, and as an immunologist, can you imagine, we've had the biggest success in 100 years in our field. It's been the most amazing thing and a huge cause of celebration for us all in many ways. And it happened very simply because we put the shoulder to the wheel. That was one reason, you know, a lot of effort, a lot of, lot of great science was happening there. So a bit of luck as well in the mix now. I mean, the RNA vaccines were unproven. They'd never been approved in humans. There could have been problems with them, you know, and yet the data stacked up and it was such a fantastic example of science and action in my view. So, and we're all just, I, I knew we'd get there by the way. I, I knew we'd, we'd break through, you know, it's just a question of when. That, that was always in my mind that we, we would do it. Uh, it could have been an antiviral instead. And in fact, just this morning, uh, we were talking with, with one of our friends uh, on, on this drug that Merck have discovered called Molnupiravir, another mouthful, Mal for short. They just published a trial that's a potent antiviral that would kill this virus on contact. You know? So now it looks like we might get an antiviral as well as a vaccine. Now, prevention is always better than cure, obviously, so we still want vaccination. But now there's plan B. Plan B is an antiviral, and that trial looks great. Now, again, we're waiting for the FDA to approve all the usual caveats usually abound in these things. But by God, the day looks great to me so far. So again, that was always our other idea, that a therapeutic would come along, you see, as well as a vaccine. And now we're getting there with that as well. So we are seeing, and leap forward is not a bad way to think of it. Because it did happen quite quickly, you know, suddenly a breakthrough is made. And another example is if the RNA vaccines work for COVID, they should work for AIDS. They should work for malaria. They should work for TB. So the leap will be, it'll be like penicillin actually in a way, you know, where now we have another technology that we can use against many infectious diseases, in this, in this case against viruses. So we're looking to the future now. Luke O'Neill is uh, touring with Metabolics and, right. uh, and, and looking back on, on a prestigious 50-year career. I'm flash forward in 20 years. This yeah. The band is still going. You've changed a few members, but that happens. <laughs> um, what do you think the landscape is going to look like for the things that trouble us today? Um, no. Uh, but yet again, my usual optimistic self, we will have treatments for all these diseases that afflict us really badly still, remember. And it's things like Parkinson's and Alzheimer's are uppermost in our minds because they're growing in incidence. They're a very difficult disease to treat at the moment, you know. And then cancer, watch, that's the other big one. And remembering cancer, we're making breakthroughs already with the immune system, killing the tumor. The big advance in cancer happened uh, in, in, in 25 years with these things called checkpoint inhibitors that wake up the immune system. And that's working in certain types of cancer. So we're looking at the vista where, where many diseases will now be treatable 
if not preventable, in 20 years' time. And all this great scientific knowledge we've built up over the last, what, 30, 40, 50, you'd hope it'd work, wouldn't you? I mean, you know, so when, when I began my PhD, there was lots of research going on. There's 10 times the level in that period, remember? So it, ha- it has to work, doesn't it? In other words, it has to deliver, you see? So, and then the more than our discussion on this, the microbiome is another example of great science happening to inform these questions. So I'm very optimistic that within 20 years, we should see great treatments for many diseases that affect us now. Is the net effect of all of that, Luke, that we're all going to live longer? I mean, that's uh, ask a 99-year-old, how do they feel? Well, they said, I'd prefer to get to 100 if you don't mind. Nobody uh, yeah. w- would turn down the extra day. But everyone living longer, not yeah. necessarily a good thing, though, is it? Well, if you're healthy, if you're healthy, you live, you live as long as you can, I suppose, is the answer. But you're quite right. Our next challenge will be demographic in a way. Because it's happening already. I mean, the, the, the average lifespan has gone up by at least 20 years in the past, say, 30 years, if you know what I mean. So now you can live, you can, and most people live to their 80s now. It used to be 70s, like our father's generation. They were all dying in their 70s. We're now living into our 80s. That will go on to the 90s. The natural lifespan for a human might be 120. Right now, um, it's hard to imagine, isn't it, in a sense, that the world will be full of people in their 90s and hundreds, I suppose. But we're heading in that direction, and that creates all kinds of interesting challenges. But isn't it great? If you, if you can be in the whole of your health into your 90s, isn't that fantastic? Because you can do whatever you want. You can meet your grandchildren. All that stuff is a great a great bonus from all the three. Yeah, uh, but it's great to think that we might get to that. Uh, it's a long way away, thankfully, but uh, it, yeah. it's a possibility, which is something we hadn't thought about. Look, bottom line, what do you do to keep your gut healthy? Just out of curiosity, because yes. I, I know it can be a struggle for me, but what does Luke O'Neill do? Nothing systematic, I must admit. I don't do anything systematic. <laughs> I do my best to have a balanced diet. Let's put that way, Joe, because that's, that's your best friend in many ways. Try to eat your meat and two veg. More, the, the more veg, the better, that kind of thing. You know, the more fiber is really good. So I try to get, keep the balance right. I don't just live off, uh, you know, burgers and chips. That's very bad for your microbiome, you see. So in my own personal case, it's mainly as diverse a diet as I can manage. I do sip off the wagon and go mad sometimes. You can't beat a nice burger, can you, now and again, or great old fish and chips, you know. So I do that occasionally, I must admit. But I guess, no, just a good balanced diet is my main method. Yeah, well, look, I mean, a rock and roll lifestyle like yours, you occasionally are going to slip <laughs> off the wagon with some fish and chips, aren't you? Uh, <laughs> Professor Luke O'Neill of Trinity College Dublin, it's an absolute pleasure as always to talk to you, sir, and uh, keep it going. Thank you, Jonathan. That's it from this episode of That Gut Feeling, the podcast series, raising awareness and the importance of your gut health with me, Jonathan Healy, and with thanks to Zenfloor. My thanks to Professor Luke O'Neill for joining me. Don't forget, you can listen and follow the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Join me next time for more on That Gut Feeling.